Ready? Absolutely. Here we go. You're listening to Learning Transforms from the Faculty of Education at the University of Victoria. I'm Ted Rieken. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. And we're coming to you from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen speaking people and the Wasanish people. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the show. show. Awesome. You ready, Freddie? I'm ready. Okay. Awesome. So, Ted, what are we talking about today? Well, today, Courtney, we are really fortunate in that we have with us uh, Alex Nelson. Uh, Alex is our 2019 Distinguished Education Alumni recipient. And he's here with us today to talk about his story, and he's being honored uh, within the faculty and and also throughout the province over the last couple of years for a lifetime of contribution to young people and their health and wellness through sport and physical activity. Alex is a graduate of our leisure studies program and um, comes to us from uh, Kingham uh, originally, and uh, welcome. Alex, nice to have you with us. Well, thank you. It's a really honor to be here and uh, citing those achievements. I'm very humbled, of course, to come and tell a story about how we reached that uh, wonderful moment. And, um, and being from Kinkum, I'm real proud to say that I have a traditional name of Okwilakamat. And uh, we're from the Muskamak, Tsawadeno First Nations, uh, the tr- four tribes. And so uh, that's where my beginnings, my creation story starts. I was reading some of the material that uh, we had as, as we were preparing to, to do the, uh, the interview and the conversation. And in one of those pieces, Alex, you talked about um, the time you had spent in a residential school in, uh, in Alert Bay. And you talked about the relationship between the soccer that you played there and, and the freedom that that gave you as an individual in that, uh, in that place. Can, can you tell us about that story and where that relationship between soccer and activity and freedom led you as a, as a life project? Yeah, it's kind of, <clears throat> um, it's kind of related to, uh, UVic, how a question came my way from one of my fellow students asking, what is it about soccer that you're so passionate about? And I didn't have an answer, a ready answer at that point, but it allowed me to process, to find an answer. And lo and behold, I go back to the personal history of residential schools. And we know residential schools haven't been kind to our people, and especially to students. And um, so with um, in institutional lifestyle and all those uh, behaviors that... Um, were produced and taught, it wasn't a a good story to tell about the experiences of residential schools. However, um, sport, especially soccer, um, is easy for me to tell because uh, I do have a passion for that wonderful game. And um, so the story is that um, you've got this institute and there's a lifestyle in it and uh, you have staff, you have a way of life that um, really, I guess, becomes trying. And uh, so if a staff person, uh, right uh, outside of uh, the residential school, there was a soccer field in Alert Bay. And, um, and on the boys' side. And so the staff would uh, throw a soccer ball out and we'd go and play. And then uh, that started to 
like I feed the interest level of playing the game and you're with your friends and you have um, just little scrimmages. But I think back on it right now and I said to myself, hmm, it is an opportunity and a time where you leave that institute, you leave that building, you leave the smell, the regimentation, the staff, and all that it stood, stands for out. And now you have this freedom. You have the fresh air, you have nature, and you have the soccer ball. And so I now interpret that as it's not just a game. Soccer is just not the, just a game for me. It's freedom. It's an expression of freedom. And, um, and it helped in my mind, looking back on that history, it helped me cope and survive uh, what I was subjected to. And so that's where soccer comes in and the passion for that. And then how did that go through? Because for a person who is not super interested in sports, although Lord knows I want to try to be, um, how did that lead for you? Because it's very rare in some ways that people have the ability to take that passion and, and create life around it, you know, in some ways. And so how did that continue on for you? Like when you chose to go to university, people don't always assume to think of, I'm going to go into university and that's going to lead me to something to do with this passion that is soccer. So how was that for you? Well, I, I connected to um, what I uh, reiterate very often is our core values is our family and community. And I, for the first six years of my life before residential school, that's what I truly experienced was a lifestyle of communal living where family was everything, community was everything, nature was everything, and all those wonderful teachings became a foundation that then um, came for me when, when I was seven and going into the residential school. And um, so now you're taken into an, a place where uh, you have few of your um, community members with you and you have other members from other tribal nations that are attending that same school. And um, so with uh, soccer itself, um, they had these sports days, May sports days, um, celebrating the, um, the Queen's birthday or whatever sports day was <laughs> in May. Um, and that called for communities to come together uh, and a community from home comes to play. And so that's where, as a residential school student, you now have your family spectating, you have your family playing and competing against each other. And so it became even more special mm -hmm. as a game. So it added to the value of, um, the core value of family. And what was missing, of course, was a sense of community. And um, so it then translated into another... I, I guess, uh, 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 how do you say, in 1958, uh, Canada's centenary, they uh, built a new soccer field in Alert Bay, and it was sort of up the hill from the residential school, and it was uh, built outside of a day school. And today, uh, we uh, have what they call June sports, and it's timed the same time as Father's Day, and uh, in them days, the uh, fishing industry started. And so they would use that event to send off and uh, bless the fishing fleet. But they included soccer tournaments and a sports day with that. And uh, so, of course, soccer, we were in it. And they had youth uh, involvement there. And they had a team from St. Michael's called the Dalton Braves. 
And so we joined as a team to participate in that tournament. And now uh, comes the identity piece, the role modeling piece. Um, we take great pride in our soccer history, uh, the Kingcom Wolves, and then later on called the Guilford Island Breakers. And it was the Breakers that uh, our uncles were playing for at the time. And I was there as a young boy watching this uh, and listening to this announcement. The most valuable player, number nine, Harry Scow. And I said, that's my Uncle Pin, you know. And I remember watching him go up on a grandstand. And what uniform number did he wear? Number nine. Hmm. And I said at that point, I want to be like my uncle. He's winning an MVP trophy at our World Cup at the age 49. And so I, that really stands clear for me. And so needless to say, my uniform, number nine. And when I turned 49 and I was still playing this game and I'm still playing it today as I'm 72, I just say, Uncle Pin, thank you for being the role model that you were and are. Hmm. So there again, it was just an added, um, uh, I guess, facet to the, the world of sport. You admire so many people, you follow their footsteps, and uh, they become your role models. And then you, in turn, start to translate that into performers. We are performers out in that soccer field. And then you start to also understand who is watching you. It's young people. So be careful with your behavior. Be careful as to how you conduct yourself and project the player that you are and you're representing your history, your family, your community, and the young people are watching. So there again, it's just another aspect of the game that I truly appreciate and I've seen unfold in wonderful ways. And then it also went on to translate coaching. Um, I've been real fortunate uh, to have that history, soccer history that um, allowed me to coach. And uh, today we've built an organization called Victoria T-Birds, and it's uh, multifaceted age groups. And we have what we call Indian season that starts in um, Easter weekend and goes out through the um, till summertime. And uh, there again, the coaching world uh, was very strong for me. And there again, I look at how sport just calls on you to hone your skills, your personal skills, and then transfer that over to the young generation. That's the coaching. Um, so with the sport world and the community world and the family values, uh, they're all connected for me, you know. Um, yeah. And you've you've <clears throat> taken that role model that you saw and uh, done justice to, to, to what he was showing you how to do. I think you were also instrumental in the uh, North American... Indigenous Games being here. You were the executive director in 1997, I believe it was. And uh, so there's the, the organizational dimension to sport as well. This, these teams don't just all arrive and, and show up and start playing. Someone has to send out the invitations. Someone has to worry about the logistics, getting the venues organized. And uh, you've done a huge amount um, over the years in that as well. Uh, yeah, I, 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 there again, I credit the June Sports Organization um, and I didn't know it at the time that it required all these little important um, uh, facets to deliver a set of games. But later on in life, and I really do credit the uh, University of Victoria in, in the Leisure Studies Department, 
where I um, studied uh, game management. I studied organizational dynamics. I had so social psychology, deviant behavior, and all those um, areas that uh, I can see coming to um, contribute to, I, I guess, the, the leadership aspects. And so in 1997, um, I was at the time uh, executive director of the Aboriginal Sports Association of BC. And uh, so with that, it was a whole host of dynamics uh, of delivering a major set of games. When you have 5,000 athletes coming to town and 3,000 cultural performers and 2,500 volunteers, and you're responsible for their well-being and their safety and enjoyment, uh, it's quite an honorable task. And I just say that, um, where did I gain those structures? And now in the, in the indigenous games, you put function to the structures. And that's where I say, university, thank you for uh, offering that and providing the academic structures that I needed. And so leadership was, was there. And uh, so, and then recognizing the connection to community. Um, it, it was a real crucial and critical, um, in my mind, analysis of how you deliver a set of games and um, what was intriguing that comes out at me was uh, the volunteer base. And who came out to volunteer? Very quickly, uh, um, Victoria came to life. And it was the elderly. Mm -hmm. It was the elderly that came forward to say, we want to volunteer for the Indigenous Games. And I sort of philosophically asked myself, why? Why are the elders coming forward? And I think they, it was searching for spirituality. And the older you become, the more philosophical it starts to translate into, I guess, searching for a spirituality. And so it, 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 that was just one of my own personal interpretation, mm -hmm. the analysis of the volunteer stepping forward. But it was proud. It was very proud 10 days. And uh, it was a demonstration of culture and sport coming together and be profiled in a balanced way. We had a big tribal journeys, the ocean-going canoe gathering at the Inner Harbor, and we had a big opening ceremonies at the University of Victoria. And all in all, you just look back on it and say, whoa, that was a glorious opportunities and event. So, yeah, thanks for asking about the North American Indigenous Games. It's crazy because for me, I am so, I'm so ignorant on these things. And I really appreciate you being so candid and being here and telling stories because I didn't realize the connection between culture, community, and and like a sports tournament, like the soccer tournament, and granted, probably not all of them are that are that way, but it sounds like a lot are, and it's a it's a beautiful weaving of those different types of. Um, so I think sometimes we like to keep them separate. You know what I mean? Like you go to a sports. I remember going to like you know different types of sports events um, with my nieces and nephews, and I, I think I could see now that there was a bit of a community that they had built right around around the soccer but sometimes it, it isn't as apparent so it's a beautiful piece that i didn't realize yeah it's really evident for me today as a player coach and i coach mainstream soccer to the league soccer here and um, and then we got what you call the indian season as i referred to earlier but i uh it's very clear to me that i look at uh, young players and where do they look they look to the sidelines if their parents are there, there's a little added glitter in their eyes and their play. And if they look to the sidelines and the family is really not there, 
that tells me that something's not connected. Mm. And there again, it was just an example of the value of family and community. And so when we uh, go to the fields on Saturday mornings to watch the young kids play, I'm very cognizant of who they have and who they're showing off to, you know. And so there again, the value of family is so critical and important. That's very powerful that, um, you know, I'm just listening as you're talking and uh, thinking about how holistic that is, how, you know, the it's it's in all encompassing, you know. That the um, you have done uh, many things over your your uh, your working life and and your your time here. Um, education has been central to a lot of it, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's sport and education. I know another field that you've dedicated your time and life to, along with uh, with your wife Nella, is the whole field of suicide education, suicide prevention. Can can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, yes. Um, first of all, I just want to go back to um, uh, the education piece, the theme, and the thread that it comes from. Um, with the residential school, uh, I was there for seven years. And on the eighth year, we were being sent to what they call a boarding home program. And I was sent further away from home to a place called Mission City in the Fraser Valley. But before we went to that, um, that year, our dad got us together. And there's five of us in the family. And Sister Sydney was too young to be a part of the dialogue at the time. But I clearly remember his instructions. Son you guys need to go get the white man's education. But when you get a chance, you teach them of who you are. And so that uh, he understood the value of education and going to get the best of both worlds. And I've, I continue to remember those. And so when it comes times for um, what happened in residential school, um, and it's now connected to the suicide theme, uh, when your community, when your personal self becomes tattered and wedged and it starts to float away from each other, um, it starts to impact what happens to the intergenerational communities. And so in our case, uh, we had this very trying year where our 20-year-old son takes his life. He was going to commotion college, bright, athletic, good-looking young man. And... Um, but he too was from a separated family. And so we, we pulled it together, and so we encouraged him to maintain his ac- academics, and but for his own reason, and we know that sexual abuse was involved in that story, uh, that it wasn't, um, he wasn't strong enough to manage and hold on to that. And so uh, he, takes his, he takes his life, and then after that we said, we cannot allow his uh, passing to go in vain. And it was ironic because um, it happened in uh, 1969, the very year that Aboriginal Sports Association was born. Mm-hmm. And it was the very same time frame uh, in March. And, uh, and so there again, as a leader of that particular organization, it was very clear to me to declare those uh, that organization is going to be used to as a preventative tool and a measure for any other suicides to happen. And so what transpired after that was, it was 18 years 
we uh, started to come back as a family, put ourselves back together. And we had these circle talks that we had every Monday night to talk about uh, suicide, suicide prevention. And um, I guess in our own way, we started to self-educate. And then other communities, other families started to hear about what we were doing and asked us to go and attend to the communities and to go and tell our story there. And that became sort of an act of suicide prevention. And um, so for 18 years, we just, we just did that. And boy, I, I just can't say enough about circle talks as a medicine, as a method of communication, and um, just a way of surviving, you know, that trauma. And um, so today, of course, we uh, take a look at the skills, we took a look at um, the theme, the threads that um, are involved in that whole um, devastating area, and you just offer it to the best you can to the communities and to the world. Yeah, so that was the dark periods of our time. But we also turned it around to say, um, and I know probably about 10 years after that, we said, let's turn this around and say, uh, let's bring ourselves back to life. Stud let's study ourselves back to life. Uh, let's move forward and learn how to live. And you've, you've extended that support to many, many people. I know that... Um over the years, you and, and Nella have hosted many children from Up Island in your home here in Victoria while they have come down and, and uh, gone to school or gone to university and so on. And it's, uh, I don't know the number, but uh, you probably would, it's, but it's, it's many. We had a, it was, uh, I want to come back to the education thread again, where uh, I was real fortunate to meet Nella, of course, and... Um, we dated for two years, and uh, she was going to Carson Graham at the time I was dating her, and I was going to UBC. And but the parents sat us down to give us give me clear instructions. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to marry our daughter, she needs to complete her education, and that's how education was so important to her parents. And of course, it translated into what Nella eventually became in the educational world. And um, so when we got married, um, we uh, moved to Victoria, and uh, and we became what you call boarding home parents. And we had some thirty come our way that we uh, we looked after, we cared for, we hosted. It was just our family, and we offered our opened up our home to do that. In the meantime, we have we have our daughter that. Uh, and it was kind of cute and when she was maybe nine, ten. Uh, we kind of felt guilty because we were our, our our focus was on looking after other individuals mm -hmm. in our home setting, and we said to her, Tash, uh, do you think that we could just spend our time together just by ourselves and not take any more kids in? And she, it became a strange question for her. She says, no, they're all my brothers and my sisters. And that was enough of an answer to say, carry on. And so there again, family, community, mm -hmm. you, you know. know and it's something that I learned um, 
because I'm lucky enough to know some of the people who you have impacted, um, who are in my generation in their 30s. And um, there's, in some places and in a lot of communities, there's not schooling past grade 8, grade 9. And this is not, it's not something that was in the past. It is still happening, right? So if you hadn't opened up your home um, for these people, for these, you know, teenagers to come down and do the schooling, they wouldn't be able, they'd have to move completely um, and kind of strike out on their own, which is very scary to do, um, and not have a safe place to land. So you, through, you know, following that theme of education, you have opened your home to over 30 people to give them the experience of education that they would not otherwise have had in a safe and uh, in a safe and supportive environment that still connects them um, to their culture and to their family, um, which is a beautiful thing. And people speak very highly of you um, about being able to be that safe space and that connection to, to what they know. Uh, thank you for that safe space reference. And uh, once again, I just say uh, I'm, I'm such a fortunate fortunate husband to have a wife like Nala to balance over my life mm. uh, and 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 I got fascinated when I when I think back on her career you know a, a, as a mother a caretaker and she pursued her education and degree and then eventually became a teacher and and then it went on to become an administrator and the workload that she puts on herself is big time Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, balancing it out with family needs, you know, and the love and care that our children deserve. So I just say she's magical. And of course, our faculty here at the University of Victoria has benefited from from her guidance for, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. She was one of the founding members of the uh, advisory board, the Indigenous Advisory Board. And um, for decades, you know, we've, we've benefited from our connection with her and and with yourself so it's been a really um it's been a, a nice journey it's been magnificent journey <laughs> and I, I i i was asked sometimes what were the most significant uh, achievements of your existence and of course i think about the north american indigenous games but first and foremost my wife saying i do mm. That was the first major achievement. <laughs> That's beautiful. Oh, yeah. Which is lovely. You're you you are a very humble, sweet man, and thank you so much for being able to share your story. How is it for you? Because you do seem you do seem quite humble. Um, and so how is it for you to get these types of awards? And you know, you're a distinguished alumni. That's fun. But how is that for you? Does that is that an okay thing? It is very humbling. It does um, offer you opportunity and, and moments to look back on how you got there. Mm. What is it that you have achieved that others see that achievement in? And um, so when I was at um, the BC Sports Hall of Fame and I was rubbing shoulders with all these um, achievers, and there's a term called greatness. I'm among greatness. And then I start thinking, you know, the road that has come my way and the number of countless people that I've rubbed shoulders with were the great people that they are that offered this now term called greatness. And I just credit 
that lifestyle. All the individuals that have ever come my way to help build me to who I've become, uh, that comes from that personal history. Mm-hmm. And there again, when I stood among uh, the Hall, Sports Hall of Fame, I wasn't standing there by myself. I was standing with a proud history, you know. So community, family, sport, soccer, yeah. Beautiful. And you're, you said you were 72? Shh. And still playing soccer. And still, still playing soccer. Still running up and down that field. Yeah, and I, I dream too. I'm still the best soccer in the world, best soccer player in the world. I look at myself in the mirror every morning. I pinch myself on the cheek and say, yeah, I'm not a bad sort. <laughs> <laughs> and so you play soccer. Are you still coaching? Uh, yes, I'm very honored to be coaching and directing young spirits. You know, uh, you're coaching and you're going to Hawaii. You said, in a yeah, next week we're soccer. going. To, yeah, it, it's been fascinating uh, growing old with the game. Uh, you do have your circle of friendships and um, and other, you know, age group elders and and so uh, right now I'm off to Hawaii next week and uh, going to play for a team uh, from California that are 70 and over. So, and that's how uh, the world starts to uh, come together. You know, you start to just identify each others in the in the circle of ages, and um, but you still the common thread is to continue to express the passion for the game and and be there. You know, so there again, I'm I'm just looking forward to going. How do you say, brighten up my teeth while my skin gets darker. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fantastic. Right. <laughs> well, Alex, it's been a pleasure to to to, uh, to spend time with you and to uh, to recognize and acknowledge the, the many things you've done over your career. And we're we're so honored that uh, you are the distinguished alumni this year. So we'd like to thank you for coming in. And um, I don't know if there's anything more you'd like to add before we wrap up. But uh, it's it's been a really a, a nice time to spend with you. Right. I just wanted to, um, and this is connected to the residential school, and truth and reconciliation is the major theme that seems to be really uh, on agendas, you know, and uh, the spirit of that. And I really say to myself, why is that there? How did it come about? So once again, it gives, gives an opportunity to review a history, but what can you do with this? And I've often um, spoken to students and organizations regarding my story of uh, residential school. And there's an image that I've left with uh, all the listeners. Up at home, there's a totem pole of the four tribes. And at one time it was outlawed. But um, our elders in 1935 sought permission from the, from the, um, the authorities to dedicate this pole to King George V, the passing of King George V, and the inauguration of King George VI. And they want to dedicate it to our king. So how could the authority say no? And it was against the law to have totem poles then. So they granted us permission to do that. And in the eyes of the elders, I now look back and I says, they not only wanted to honor the king, but they left that legacy to remind us that we are a proud nation. We know who we are and where we come from. And that totem pole stands beside a church, King George Anglican Church. And the image is there's a rainbow that hovers over both. 
And I've said to myself, thank you, Creator, for that rainbow, because you've defined Alex's place in this world. We have the best of both worlds. We have that tonal pole, the traditional world, and then the non-traditional world, and we live in harmony. Thank you. Wow, what a beautiful, beautiful story. Thank you so much for Thank being you. here today. Learning Transforms is brought to you by the Faculty of Education and the Association of Graduate Education Students. Learning Transforms is produced by Julie Remy. Sound design is by Xavier Arujo. Special thanks to Alex Nelson. I'm Ted Rekin. And I'm Courtney Baldwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>